HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant, and we're here in Charleston recording a special episode of The Line. My guest today is Alon Shia. He was born in Bat Yam, just south of Tel Aviv, and he moved to Philadelphia as a very young child. He started cooking in New Orleans when he was just 23 and quickly made a name for himself there. He's been nominated for five James Beard Awards and was named Best Chef South Region while at Dominica in 2015, and Shia won the James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant in 2016. He was selected as one of 50 people who are changing the South by Southern Living Magazine in 2015 and one of the 50 most influential Jews in America by The Forward. He recently formed Pomegranate Hospitality with his wife, which operates Saba in New Orleans and Safta in Denver, located in the Source Hotel. And in March of 2018, he published his debut cookbook, Shia, An Odyssey of Food, My Journey Back to Israel. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eli. Glad to be here. So I want to start by talking about the beginning of your life in Israel growing up, uh, your grandmother, Matilda, and what type of influence that had. So she wasn't born in Israel, right? No, she was born uh, in Bulgaria, Mm -hmm. in Sofia, and and so was my Saba, uh, my grandfather. Uh, And they both immigrated from Sofia to Jaffa in 1948. And so... Was she a cook? Is is the name relevant beyond the fact that time. she's your grandmother and you love her? Big time. Okay. Yeah. She she was um, an amazing cook and really um, was the one that really helped me fall in love with food and and make that my lifelong dream to to be involved with. And a lot of people they sort of grew up at the knee of one of their grandparents or their mom or something in the kitchen. Uh, she was probably bringing a lot of those flavors of Bulgaria coupled with what was going on in that time in in Israel, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern spice blends. So what exactly does that what is your Safta's cuisine sure. fe- feel like and smell like and taste like? Yeah. Well, the 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 roasting peppers and eggplants over an open fire uh, was really one of my most earliest memories of food. Uh, and that's for a dish that she makes that's called uh, lutenitsa, um, which is a Bulgarian spread of like roasted peppers and eggplant and tomato and garlic and olive oil that's cooked down for a long time. 
And that Lutenitsa was my earliest memory of food and, and helped me think that food was connected to happiness and connected to um, family being together. So that, that was the most, the most important thing that she would cook for me. But she'd also make barecas stuffed with feta cheese and she'd make stuffed cabbage and braise it down for hours on the stovetop. And she'd make um, incredible um, fish egg spread called ikra and we'd eat that with um, different kinds of pickles. Um, she even made labna and would, you know, season that up with all different kinds of vegetables and olive oil. Uh, I, I really think back to my softest cooking as um, some of the happiest times of my childhood. It seems fair that uh, the inspiration around food was there immediately that you have these fairly strong memories. Did the, did your softest passion trickle down to either your mom or your dad? So your, your mom was born in Israel. Your dad came from Romania where they, they met there. Um, did they catch the cooking bug at all or did it just jump did. to you? My mother did. Mm -hmm. She, my mother would always cook all of my softest recipes. And so uh, you know, I left Israel when I was four years old, and my Saba and Safta stayed in in Jaffa, and and so my mom then was the one from the age of five um, through my childhood who was the one that was cooking for me, uh, and she would cook all of my Safta's recipes, and she'd also make a lot of her own recipes as well, and uh, I learned just as much from my mom as I did from my Safta. So what brought your family to Philadelphia? You had said before we went on air that your dad had moved to Philly a couple years before the rest of your family, and then you and your sister and your mom joined. So uh, what was the impetus for moving to America? And also, I know you were really young, but uh, were you excited? Did you have a lot of trepidation about leaving Israel and going somewhere totally new? Yeah, my, my father fought in the Yom Kippur War in 1973 and uh, opened up a frame shop in Jaffa uh, that didn't do very well. And so he was just kind of having a real uh, string of traumatic experiences in Israel, um, bad luck, and um, was just not happy there. And he wanted to come to America and make a better life for himself and for the rest of our family. And so uh, his goal from... Uh, from the time he got to Israel, was eventually to move to America and uh, start a fresh life out here. Uh, so in 1980, uh, he did that. And he came to the Philadelphia area because my mother's sister, my Aunt Debbie, uh, was living in the Philadelphia area. So we had a family connection there. Um, and so when he moved here in 1980, he began uh, working um, as like a laborer in um in machine shops and uh, was working in a thrift store, um, stocking shelves and um, organizing all of the, the different, you know, furniture and clothing and everything that was for sale. And in 1980, by, by the time 1982 came around, he'd finally like raised up enough money so that we could, my sister and my mother and I could uh, immigrate to Philadelphia and he would, you know, he had a car and he had a, an apartment ready to go. Uh, and so we moved here and I was not at four years old. I didn't, th I don't think I knew what was really going on. Um, but I also 
remember it like not being a good a good transition. Uh, my my mother ended up leaving my father about a year after um, that. So by 1983, uh, my mother was raising my sister and I on her own, and um, it was definitely hard and definitely not uh, a happy time in my life. Um, when my grandfather and my grandmother would come and um, be with us because during that time that, you know, my mother separated from my father, we, we had to get a new house. We moved kind of more into the suburbs and um, my grandmother and my grandfather would come and spend a lot of time with us to like take care of my mom and make sure that um, we were going to get off to a good start. And um, those were the times that my Safta would cook, you know, and she'd spend all day in the kitchen cooking while my Saba was out helping, you know, going to the hardware store, helping fix things up around the house, um, helping my, like teaching my mom how to drive. She didn't know how to drive. Uh, and so I would gravitate towards the kitchen and cook with my Safta. And I just remember those moments feeling like things were somewhat normal because they would spoil us when they came and they would take us out to eat Chinese food and they would bring chocolates in their suitcase. And um, I, I just remember though being with my grandparents, being happy times. Was there a feeling as you started to get old enough to realize and remember that you had not been born in the United States and um, I don't know, maybe your mom, definitely your grandparents had accents. Um, was there a feeling that you were different than American kids that you went to school with? And if there, if there was, or if, even if there wasn't, um, were you kind of pushing to really assimilate and, um, and Americanize yourself? Very much so. I mean, I, I, I changed the pronunciation of my name to Alon, um, versus Alon, mm -hmm. um, because people would call me alone, uh, and it made me feel lonelier than I already felt. Uh, I didn't speak English when I first came to America. So going to school and not understanding the language and feeling like my language was different, um, was very, was very hard for me. I was ended up getting bullied a lot. And I remember, um, doing my best to assimilate and to be like everyone else and to really push anything that had to do with Israel or, or my life prior to coming to America, um, I really worked hard to push that all away. Was there, uh, was there a time before you got into high school, which we'll talk about in a second, there were some fairly influential people there, where you felt like it might be easier to just leave the United States and move back to Israel, maybe with your grandparents? Or did that not really cross your mind? Like, was it like, let me push forward and try to become as American as possible? Or was there any inkling of like, maybe I should, maybe there's a way to just kind of leave this life that's not really making me happy here? Never was a, never did that ever come to my mind. Mm -hmm. It was, it was push forward, survive, um, and, and try to be bigger and meaner and angrier than everyone was towards me. So when you get into high school, are you head down, focused on studies? Are you a are you a bad student who's a troublemaker? Like what what is that vibe like? And then if you can talk about two people that stepped into your life and had a really strong impact on shaping your future. Yeah, well, the, the majority of my childhood, um, well, really all of my childhood, I was very 
very angry again, like very embarrassed about um, that my skin tone was a different color, that my language wasn't as good as everyone else's. So I um, really acted out. And by the time I was in high school, I was um, selling drugs, doing all kinds of drugs, stealing cars, beating people up, getting beat up, um, getting into knife fights, getting kicked out of school, um, all of the above and, and, um, and a lot more. And it was, it was, um, I didn't have like any kind of like guidance or consequence. Um, my mom was working two jobs. She was, you know, always doing her best to keep a, a roof over our heads. And my dad, um, I would only see on the weekend for a day and I would pretty much just get into a lot of trouble. And, by the time I like made it somewhat through high school, um, my home economics teacher, I took a home economics class um, because I got to hold knives and be around girls and freshly baked cookies. And I thought that that was the trifecta. Uh, I thought that was way better than like sitting in, you know, Spanish class. Yeah. So uh, I took home ec and, and, and know that like, throughout my childhood, like cooking was always such a very big part of my life. I cooked a lot at home, um, from a very young age. And, um, by the time I was in high school, I already had had a job at a bakery and at a butcher shop, um, you know, cleaning up and working the register and, and, um, taking out trash and washing dishes. Uh, so in high school I took home ec and Donna Barnett was my home ec economics teacher. And she, um, I respected her right away because she was no nonsense. She um, knew how to cook really well. And she really like held everyone's respect in the classroom. Um, everyone really enjoyed Donna's class because of her personality and she was down to earth. And so, you know, Donna saw that I liked to cook and had a talent for it. Um, and she was the one that really kind of helped me set my life straight. Uh, when other teachers would kick me out of her class, out of, out of their class, she, they would send me to her class. Uh, and she worked out a deal with all the teachers in the school that Alan doesn't go to detention or doesn't get sent home. He comes to my classroom. And I'd go there and she'd have like a big bag of onions and give me a knife and have me slice the onions. And I'd sit there like crying from slicing the onions. And she would start getting into my head and asking me what, what I did and why I did it and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And she was the only adult in my childhood that I, I had any type that had any kind of authoritative um, influence on me. So she is the one that set me up to go to vocational school, which was a school about 20 minutes away from my high school. And by my senior year, I was um, going to Votech in the morning and cooking in a commercial style kitchen. And then I was coming back to my high school to take her home, ec home economics class as well as all the other core classes. And she set me up at a job um, in a restaurant in Manionk, Pennsylvania, um, which is a part of Philly. And so that was my first um, job in a fine dining restaurant, actually cooking, like working a station, uh, when I was about 16, um, and a half years old. And at that point, my life started to turn around. Um, and I, I began, you know, spending my time cooking and thinking about food and listening to Donna 
than I than I did um, being out on the streets, like doing all kinds of crazy, she really saved crazy you. shit. She saved my she saved my life, no doubt about it. And so, um, my my vocational chef instructor, his name is Seth Schramm. Him and Donna got together and really became my my like representatives. Like they were the ones that um, would talk to my mom, tell them, tell her what I was doing every day, um, what, what I was going to be doing to, to try to get into culinary school. Seth wrote a letter of recommendation to the CIA cause he was an alum from there, um, helped me find grants and scholarships to be able to afford to go. And together, Seth and Donna set me on the path to the culinary Institute of America. I know that you're still close with them, and we'll talk a little bit later on in the show about the the uh, projects and initiatives that you've started with them. But since you are still close with them, I wonder if you had ever, you've ever asked them what did they see in you that they thought would make you shapeable and be able to change. You've just told us so many things that uh, made you appear from from outward appearances like you're someone who didn't want help, didn't want saving, and sort of like a lost cause. And then here's two people that invested clearly a lot of time and energy in helping you. So what did they see? What do you think they saw when you were 16, 17? Well, because I, I had a huge passion for cooking and for food, and I tied that passion back to those moments cooking with my grandmother when like life was okay. Um, and when food was was having a positive influence on me from a young age. And then growing up, I, I mean, I loved to eat. I loved to try new things. I loved um, understanding new flavors. And so when I was around Donna and Seth, I really let my guard down and I became myself. You know, I, I'm a loving person. I have a good sense of humor. I care about people and I care about things a lot. And um, that was just not who I was to everybody else. Um, I, I had some big chip on my shoulder that I couldn't, I couldn't shake. Um, but around Donna and Seth, um, I think they saw the real Alan, like the person that was inside. And um, they took that opportunity to like do what they could to help me and go out of their way to help me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so surprised to hear that about your past based on your, I mean, we've j- only just met, but based on your demeanor and just, your your vibe and your attitude you seem like such a happy go lucky guy oh, i mean so i things am have, things i mean changed so much over the years but i'm nothing uh, like i was yeah and, and so is there a is there times when you look back and think like who was that person does it still feel like that was very much a part of you and you've evolved or do you think that there was almost like a split and you become sort of like a totally new person in a way well Going to culinary school um, helped me wipe the slate clean. And it was, I I describe it as um, being a painter and getting a huge blank canvas with nothing on it. And And this was at the CIA? At the CIA, yeah. Are you in New York? Upstate New York. Okay, at Hyde Park. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I I remember my first day in culinary school um, just walking down the hallway. And seeing that people were making eye contact with me, you know, saying hello, introducing themselves to me. And, um, you know, in my high school, that 
that didn't happen. The teachers all hated me for the most part, except for Donna. So, you know, they'd all written me off. And, and so I, I started to feel in culinary school, like this is really my second chance. Like here I am, like I'm leaving this like single Ikea bed that I've been sleeping on for, uh, you know, 15 years. And, um, next thing you know, I'm, I'm, in a dorm and my window is overlooking the Hudson river and it's fall and the trees are changing color and uh, I'm meeting people and going to these orientations where um, people are treating me like a normal person. Uh, I didn't hang out with normal people. I I didn't have like normal friends where we like shared feelings and stuff in high school. I, that was never, you know, it was all my friendships were based around getting in, getting into trouble and doing things that were not, that were not okay. And, um, and so I started to like meet people that were like just interested in like me and what I liked about cooking and where I came from and my life just turned around. I mean, it was, it was pretty much that instant. Um, I still had to shake off some of like the bad tendencies of, of like how to handle conflict. Um, you know, I, I got in trouble for, uh, slicing some guy's tires open in the parking lot because he was being an asshole to me. And, uh, you know, I'd get into a fight every once in a while in the kitchen with, you know, someone that was um, getting up in my face or challenging me somehow. Um, but I, but I, I, that's not, I never, at that time, it definitely didn't feel comfortable to do that. And it definitely felt like I was risking something and that there was consequence. Um, and I didn't want to give up this, opportunity that I had to really start fresh. So um, I graduated the CIA with perfect attendance and um, I, won, I won an award from Robert Mondavi during the graduation ceremony and I got pretty much straight A's and graduated close to the top of my class. And so I, it turned me like, like that, it just did. And from then on, I never looked back and I've, you know, I kept my head down and I worked and studied and um, I worked a lot and my, my, all of my twenties and early thirties just kind of went by in a flash. Were you able to kind of funnel your anger and shift it into intensity or like, did you carry some of that anger with you as like a chip on your shoulder to be like, now I need to be successful because I've sort of committed to this career path. Like some chefs have a sort of an obsessive nature and some have just a sort of a, a wonder and they approach everything with just, um, searching for flavor and trying new things. Are you one or the two or somewhere in the middle? Uh, I don't know that I would categorize myself in one or those one of those two things. Mm-hmm. I think I um I loved what I did. I loved being in kitchens. I loved the camaraderie of it. I loved studying about food and cooking things and being challenged. I loved the intensity of of the of the kitchen and of the line. Um, and honestly, uh, a lot of the things that I saw coming up in the industry were you know, just as bad as the shit that I was doing in high school and, you know, chefs cursing at me and throwing stuff at me and, you know, doing drugs openly and, um, all the kitchen, of the, the kitchen of the nineties, the kitchen wasn't of, of quite the nineties and much different early from 2000s. What, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I had a lot of really bad leaders like I, and, and I didn't, I think because I didn't have a lot of great influences as a child, like coming up, 
um, other than Dinah and Seth, but I, you know, I was like 16 years old at that time. I, um, you know, I, I felt myself kind of gravitating towards um, these asshole chefs and thinking that that was okay or thinking that that was cool and that you needed to be like a narcissistic, condescending piece of shit to be successful in the restaurant business. And uh, as I got older and in my early 30s, um, I started, you know, I met my wife, Emily, and um, she helped to really change my life around to help me understand that um, I'm somebody that is okay for me to be like who I am and that I can, um, you know, I, I don't need to like go towards negativity just because that's what I was used to. Um, so, you know, I think that it's been an evolution and my life has continued to evolve. And I think just in the last, um, few years, I've finally been able to surround myself with people that I can actually really look up to and people that I trust and that, um, are just good intentioned, honest, good hearted people. Um, and I'm 41 and I feel like this, the last three years of my life has been the the time, the happiest three three years of my life. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about you getting out of CIA and, of course, starting on uh, your culinary journey to where you are today. Stick with us. We'll be right back here on the line on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I'm joined today by Chef Alon Shia. We were talking before the break about you getting into the CIA and how you really thrived there and how you uh, connected with someone in your high school, Donna, who really changed the trajectory of where you were going. So when you graduate the CIA with honors, you're really starting to sort of make a true path for yourself. What was the next thing that you did? Did you go work at a restaurant in New York or did you go to New Orleans? What was your next step? I went to Las Vegas mm -hmm. and uh, I worked in Vegas as a cook in the casinos um, and quickly started to um, get promoted up into sous chef. And um, by the time I was uh, 20 years old, I was running the Rio Seco Golf Club, um, which was the golf resort for the Rio Casino. And uh, I was running this kitchen. I mean, we would serve 
12 people a day. Um, but I was throughout this time learning a lot of um, communication skills the hard way and learning how to like work with people and, and understand um, how to properly um, communicate my thoughts and how to listen to people. So uh, definitely not an easy path and definitely not, I, I was definitely chasing the paycheck um, at a young age, even though I loved the food I, I found myself um, by the time I was 23 years old, um, running a buffet at the Harris Casino in um, in Los in St. Louis, I moved from Vegas to St. Louis, but I you know I kept getting promoted, and they were putting me into these positions that I shouldn't have been in at that at that time of my life. Uh, and why? Sorry, why do you say that you shouldn't have been in those positions? I just wasn't ready to lead people. Just maturity, I, yeah, level. I wasn't mature enough yeah. to lead people the right way. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't communicate well. I, um, you know, tried to emulate the crazy asshole chef that was training me that I thought was cool. Um, and so, you know, it, it just took years and years of that, those types of like hard lessons to finally get me to like, um, understand that there's such a much better way that makes me so much happier to do. Uh, and that I don't need to keep gravitating towards like the hard, like the, the, the resist, like the way of the, of most resistance, um, that there were easier ways to excel. Um, and, and that had to be with, um, me really understanding how to, um, how to communicate and how to respect people and how to listen to people. When you move up too quickly, you always run the risk of not having someone above you who can be your mentor. And then you don't necessarily know how to solve a problem and you have no one to go to. So you just have to kind of fake it. And it can be a very lonely place, right? Where you're 23 or 24, you're in charge, but really you're still kind of lost in how to go about the day to day. Was there someone that you were able to connect with in your mid twenties who ended up being a mentor or um, were you still just kind of flying solo for many years, figuring out your own path? Yeah. I, I had mentors that I worked with at Harris that um, people that were just like on the executive level that would help to guide me with advice. Um, I wasn't good at listening to people's advice and, you know, now knowing what I know as a 41 year old that is, that is focused on creating uh, a company with a really safe and healthy work environment as being my number one priority for my profession right now. Um, I, I don't, I didn't have a mentor that really taught me things other than I would say Donna and Seth were my, my two biggest influences. Uh, and then coming up, I, I've really just kind of had to figure it out. How did you end up in New Orleans and, uh, you know, you spent a lot of time in BRG and had a lot of success there. Um, how did you end up starting with that group? And and you rose again quite quickly with with that organization as well. Yeah, um, I I don't I, I don't consider myself really having a lot of success there. Okay, um, I feel that um, I definitely moved up the ranks. I definitely like you know I I moved to Italy when I was. Um, right after Hurricane Katrina, where I started to really begin my 
uh, understanding of self-reflection and um, trying to really dig down to who I was. Um, and then, you know, I felt that I needed to move to Italy to, um, to learn how to cook Italian food. Like, I, I wasn't ready at that point. When, to answer your question, I moved from St. Louis to, to New Orleans in 2003 um, as a transfer with Harris. So I came down as the buffet chef from Harris in St. Louis to be the buffet chef at Harris in, um, in New Orleans. And again, chasing that paycheck. I was making more money than my parents had ever made already, like way above that. Um, and, and it wasn't that much money, but I felt at the time like I could afford my own car payment and I could afford an apartment. Um, and then eventually a, a condo that I bought. I thought that I was like rich, like very rich. And um, with working at the casino, it provided me with those benefits uh, and a higher paycheck than I would have gotten at an independent restaurant. And then Katrina hit. Um, and I decided to move to Italy to apprentice out there. And uh, Jeff Michoud, who was a chef in Philadelphia at um, Osteria, was my connection to get me a job in Italy. Uh, I moved there and began working in Salumifici, which are like the, the, the butcher shops where culatello and salami and pancetta are made. And I worked in a, a ristorante where I would roll pasta and bake bread and, and work the risotto station. Um, and that really uh, helped to solidify my love and passion for Italian cooking and culture. Um, I came back and moved in with Emily, who Emily and I had met just about six months prior to me moving to Italy. And uh, she would come out and visit me while I was out there. And when I came back, uh, I moved in with her. And I began the planning to the planning for opening Dominica. And you took all those things that you had been studying overseas and brought them back to Dominica. Did you did you have expectations that Dominica would be as well received as it did? Did you have an inkling in your mind that it would, um, you know, garner you significant acclaim? Well, I guess I hoped I hoped that it would. Um, I was definitely. Um, fighting for success. I was fighting for, you know, the recognition in magazines or being invited to come to a food fest festival to cook or being interviewed on the morning news for, a, a you know, my Passover menu or whatever it might have been. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed um, feeling like my work was being appreciated. Um, and so then, as that was as that was happening and i was getting a chance to really like know the customers and build relationships with people in new orleans and feel like i was really putting down some roots as a as a citizen of new orleans and that meant a lot to me because i was i was there through katrina and i saw new orleans just collapse and i felt um like i could be useful there i felt like i could make a difference there so seeing New Orleans kind of come back after the storm was one of the most powerful moments of my life and I think really influenced me to um, care about being part of a bigger community and get out and to do things to help the community. So I, 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 I've spent most of my 
um, I, I guess I've spent the last 15 years like uh, really going out of my way to do things that I can for um, the community as a whole and especially for um, students that are studying food in high school. And that's always made me feel just really, really good. Shia was such a personal project, obviously. It carried your name, and you started serving food there that was closely aligned with your family's history. Was there, were you nervous in any way to start cooking that food? There, there's almost like more of a microscope sometimes when you're cooking, quote unquote, your own food, and expectations can often be higher in that sure. scenario. Um, how did you feel when you were R&Ding that restaurant? And, and as it opened, obviously it did very well. And, yeah. uh, you know, you won an award for it at the beginning. Were you, were you happy in Shia in that environment at the beginning? No, I was not happy. It was, uh, actually, I would say probably one of the most miserable times of my life. Um, and it was because, um, I, when I was about 35, I took a trip, um, um, I took a trip to Israel and I, I really, it really clicked for me that I should be looking back towards my roots and that I felt as a, as an adult, um, way more confident in who I was and, and who I should be, where my roots were. And so I, I began to really look back at all my notes that I was taking from my safta and all the food that she would cook for me and that my mother would cook for me. And I began cooking that food at home and I began cooking it at, at Dominica and, and kind of like um, dressing it up like Italian food. You know, I, I would make hummus and call it chachi puree. And uh, that I kept sneaking all these things into the menu and I kept people seemed to really like it. So I, I started to kind of build this confidence to say like, hey, I can be alone shia i don't have to be alan shia the you know the the really scared kid in philadelphia i can really start to think about who i am and who where my life is going and what values are very important to me um and i never you know i never put value on like personal values as a as a young adult in high school i never i never um you know, my value was work ethic and passion for food. Those were the two things that meant the most to me. Uh, and once I started getting older, I realized that, you know, I really liked good communication. I liked respect. I liked empowerment, uh, that those things were important to me. Um, and it was important that I was that way to other people. If, if these were the things that I was expecting people to, the way that people should treat me. And... I never felt that like um, during the the Shia years. I felt like it was completely unsustainable, and I felt like the um, the the path that I was on was eventually just going to hit a brick wall, and it did. And when all that happened, and there was, I guess it was it was forced upon you, right? You had to go in a new direction. And you're kind of, there's a, a blank slate or a new road in front of you. Yeah. Um, was there ever a question that you were going to do 
a different type of cuisine or did you say to yourself, I'm going to stay in this Israeli realm, these flavors that like I'm so passionate about and that I've been cultivating and developing? Or did any part of you say that was so painful, that was so tumultuous, maybe I need to move away from that for a specific amount of time or for forever? Uh, no, I, my goal, um, once hitting that wall was to create a safe and healthy work environment for a team of people. And, uh, and my goal was to create a set of core values that we would be able to build a company on. And my wife, um, Emily and I began working on that together. And, uh, in 2017, we started pomegranate hospitality just her and I in our living room with no restaurants and no employees. Um, and we began building the blueprint for how pomegranate hospitality's mission statement, um, and core and how the mission statement would build the path forward for us as a restaurant group. Um, we didn't know what restaurants we were going to have. We didn't have any idea what the next uh, restaurant was going to be, where it was going to be. Like we, we worked on getting an understanding of what pomegranate hospitality was going to be. Uh, and then we started to, you know, bring people on board. I, I hired um, about six people that we all worked out of my living room with my wife and our two dogs and um, our director of people and culture, uh, Susie Dare um, was one of the, was one of the first hires that we made. Um, along with uh, Zach Engel, who now has a restaurant in, in Chicago, Galit, that is really incredible. Um, and Zach came on as our culinary director, and Meredith Dunbar came on as our communications director, and she was working with me at Shia. Um, and a couple of other people joined our team, uh, Sean, who was running operations for us. And together, we all created um, the core value system. Uh, also, Kara Peterson, who's our head chef at Saba, um, who I worked with at Shia, came and joined our, our team. And so we all together sat and we said, okay, well, what are the values that um, we want this company to be about? And we settled on nine core values that really run the show for us. And our the, our interview questions for recruits are built on the nine core values. Our exit interview on your last day of employment is built off of questions from the nine core values. When we sit and talk about performance and evaluations, we ask about empowerment and we ask about respect and fairness and communication. Um, there's one question or there's one line on the evaluation form that has to do with customers. Uh, and so our focus now that we have two restaurants, uh, Saba in New Orleans and Safta in Denver, um, and a consulting company that we work on um, consulting with other businesses. And we have a, a foundation now called the Shy Barnett Foundation that I work with. I'm so lucky enough to be able to work with Donna Barnett and Seth Schramm, the two teachers that helped to pave that original road out of Philly for me. Um, the three of us plus the rest of our team all work together to create um, experiences for children in uh, career and technical sciences at the high school level 
to help them find their paths forward the way that they did for me. Um, and so I would say since we started Pomegranate and our put our value system in place, not only for our company, but also personally for our lives. Um, it's been the happiest, it's been the happiest time of my life. Yeah. I was, I'm curious about just general mental health because that's one of the main tenants that a hospitality group can tackle maybe more efficiently than a singular restaurant, right? Like part of the reason you build that infrastructure is so when you look back at what was a toxic environment and you exit that, you can create a framework for your employees to have a safe existence, right? And when you're putting all those pieces together um, and you're putting those nine core values and you're just sitting in that room together, is that, did you feel at that moment like um, all the weight from everything that happened oh, yeah. had been lifted off your shoulders? 100%. I mean, I felt that I was surrounded with people that shared in the same um, values because we built them together. And no matter no matter what you personally think or what your personal values are, if you are surrounded by people that don't share that, um, you have a very hard road ahead of you. And there's probably a lot of times that you're going to fail at a lot of things because you don't have the support system around you that is needed to, to reinforce those values. And, uh, and so if you're responsible for the, the um, jobs of 170 people, which you know my wife Emily and I now are, um, that that's very it becomes very important to say like these are the non-negotiables. This is the way we're going to act. This is the way we're going to expect people to act, and we have control over who we we surround ourselves with to say, do you believe in these things, and is this something you're going to commit to? And we ask every member of Pomegranate Hospitality to commit to those values. And when they don't, they're held accountable. And um, it it has been incredible to see, the, to, because we, I think, did a, a very um, good job in articulating the tone of what our company was going to be about. Um, it has grown from within. And the people that we work with every day are holding us accountable and holding each other accountable to following those values. And so it's bigger than me or, or Emily. It's, it's now uh, something that's alive in, in a whole big group of people. And that, or, that like living organism now is feeding itself through people that share in respect and empowerment. And they don't put up with bullshit and you know they'll, they'll call you out on it if something is not right and if we're not living up to our promises and I'll tell you what like um, it's it's the it's no, there's no utopia it's not all happy great everything's good every day like we deal with a lot of hard decisions and we deal with a lot of um, things that uh, make our our make us stay up at night sometimes um, and it, and it has to do though with us feeling confident that the decisions we're going to make as a group will tie back to the core values of our company. And that kind of helps to be our lighthouse um, as we do grow, grow our company. We don't do everything great, but 
we um, we have intentions to, and we work towards it. And I feel like there's no one on our team that is intentionally pulling it down the way that I've always kind of felt before. I have a, a question about money and fundraising, but it's kind of twofold. And the first part of it is, you know, when you're putting together this pomegranate hospitality, this new team, and you have these people that, that have these specific roles in order to obtain and retain quality talent and also to open up restaurants, the fact of the matter is you just need money to do it. Yes, you do. And, and a lot of the things that you're articulating are important to you and your wife and your business. They are things that they cost additional money, For sure. right? And they don't necessarily hit the bottom line or as, as appear as a line item in a traditional sense of the word, right? Some, yeah. Sometimes doing a good job at being a business person means you have to make a little bit of less money yeah. to make people happier, right? Yeah. So I guess my my main question is, is like, did you bring on a financial partner in order to help open Pomegranate, Pomegranate Hospitality? And did you find it difficult while articulating all those things to connect with the right person who saw your vision as well. Uh, it, it, you can say the same thing about an heirloom tomato, that you spend more money for an heirloom tomato to be, to be able to provide a, a delicious tasting tomato to your, your guest. Um, you're not going to make the margin on an heirloom tomato that you would make on a canned tomato or on a on a you know five by six underripe grocery store tomato, and uh, and so it takes investment and it takes um, surrounding yourself with people that believe in in that the investment to um, pay extra for that heirloom tomato is important enough for the success of the business. If you switch out the words heirloom tomato with um, people and culture, it's the exact same thing. You have to find um, the people that will invest in you, um, but also invest in the ideology that the restaurant business doesn't have to be uh, a toxic work environment and that we should offer health benefits and that we should offer paid time off and that we should offer yearly cost of living increases um, to keep up with inflation and that we should offer discounts to gym memberships and uh, an employee assistance program so our team can get help with legal or financial or mental health um, challenges that they may be having. Uh, the, the cost of going on field trips and feeding the team on a farm where, 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 where our lamb are grown in Colorado um, costs money. And... Uh, you have to, as you find investors that will help support your your company to become uh, successful, you have to find an investor that values that just as much as they do an heirloom tomato. You have Saba and Safta. They're not in the same city. A lot of people would uh, say that opening up a restaurant is the hardest thing that you could ever do pretty much. And trying to manage two restaurants in the same city is incredibly difficult, but you are, you have spots that are a plane ride away, one in Denver and one in New Orleans. Uh, can you just briefly talk about some of the challenges that have existed sure. in that 
uh, type of uh, relationship and also how your organization has uh, been successful in overcoming some of those challenges when you have two restaurants that are a thousand or more miles apart? Yeah. Well, we've, we've invested in our team and we, we brought on a director of operations. Her name is Amanda Quintal. She's, she has been just a, an amazing, amazing addition to our great team and has brought such great expertise and operations. She worked for Shake Shack for a while and also for Flywheel for a while. Um, and she has really helped Emily and I develop the processes um, that make operating restaurants in two different cities possible. Uh, the way we communicate, the way that we um, schedule meetings, the way that we split our time, um, it's all very calculated and uh, it, there are definite challenges with it. Um, it's challenging to not know who a, a new employee is um, because they started when you know you weren't in the same city. And so every time I go to Safta, um, you know, I'm meeting new people that are joining the team. And, and for me, that's challenging to like not be there at the whole, you know, throughout that entire um, experience for them, for them on onboarding onto pomegranate. But, um, but, you know, we put a lot of trust into people that are really good at what they do. And they're the ones that set the tone on the ground. And um, pomegranate hospitality, our job is to just guide and advise um, the teams at the restaurants to um, to make sure that we're treating people with respect and empowering people and staying organized and communicating well and providing good educational opportunities and treating people fair. Uh, and all of these are our core values. And so... Uh, I think that core value system really helps us to align our priorities. Um, and then personal happiness, I think, is also very important and work-life balance. And uh, Emily and I really love Colorado. We love to fly fish. We love to ski. We love to be in the mountains um, with our dogs. And so our happiness means something to us. And uh, part of the reason that we have a restaurant in Colorado and a restaurant in Louisiana is so that we can split our time in a, in a, it's never like an exact, you know, there, it's not 50, 50, it's not 70, 30, it changes all the time, but, um, it gives us an opportunity to be somewhere we really love. Uh, we love new Orleans. We love the Rocky mountains and Denver and, uh, it helps keep us happy. And so I think that means something because that's what we expect from all of our team members, that they find happiness and find balance in their lives too. Building on that that happiness for you and your wife and your business and your team, I uh, want to close with this question, which is as you invest so much time and energy in yourself and your business and all of these people, uh, what is your a uh, five-year or 10-year plan look like? How sketched out is it in your mind and actually on paper so that all of these things that you're building so that they can thrive and, and survive, but also so that you can perhaps expand and continue to grow people within your own business? Sure. How, how do you... Uh, how do you plan for that if you can and if you yeah. can share a little bit of what that roadmap looks like? Yeah. Well, we um, we really started focusing on consulting 
And we're working with Marriott Hotels in Atlanta right now, two different Marriott's, um, to develop uh, an Italian restaurant uh, in Atlanta. And so our team is able to grow in that sense. Um, We've been able to um, get our team members to uh, help with that consulting and that expansion from a, from a business side. Uh, we enjoy that kind of growth because we don't have to take out any personal um, financial liability or, or go look for money. Um, and it's good income for our company and we get to help uh, an operator reach their goals. And so that's something that we're doing a lot of. And we're also focusing on catering at both restaurants and growing the catering businesses. We, have a catering director at each restaurant that are out trying to, um, you know, find parties for us to cook for and to serve at. And uh, that's plenty for us. And um, every time, I mean, if, if I, if my life was built on five-year plans, you know, I would, I would, I don't know where I would be. Uh, Sometimes they're, they're not even one month plans, but I think our goal in the next five years, the next 10 years is to my dream would be in five or 10 years to look back and to say that our company is healthier than ever. Um, that Saba and Safta are, are still great places for people to work and to live out their personal and professional dreams and goals. And, um, that would be very successful for me. Chef, thanks so much for being here and sharing your story. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Eli. Everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. You can find this episode and all of our other episodes on the website, heritageradionetwork.org, or wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, on Spotify. Join us Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for new episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.